Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 15. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. The word of the Lord. On the Sermon on the Mount, which is the longest and most famous teaching of Jesus in the Bible, it's all about living the life of the kingdom of God. It's about living the life that you were made for. Do you ever feel like you were made for something? The Sermon on the Mount gives us a picture of that life. And at the center of the sermon is prayer. And that's not an accident because at the very heart of uh, truly spiritually transformed life is deep, intimate relationship with God. So we're looking at this very famous prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. It's called the Lord's Prayer. And we've been going through it line by line. This week, we're looking at the very last verse, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, here's the thing that's been haunting me all week about this. The first word of the Lord's Prayer, literally in the original language, the first word is Father. But that means that um, the, the whole prayer is, um, is, begins with the reality of God. But the very last word of the prayer literally is evil. That means that the Lord's Prayer begins with the reality of God, but it ends with the reality of evil. Almost as if Jesus envisions us getting up off our knees, walking out our front door, and heading straight into a minefield of evil. Because that's what this world feels like a lot of the time, doesn't it? Especially these past couple of weeks. I mean, two weeks ago, eight people shot dead in Atlanta, including six Asian women. And then again, this past week, 10 more people shot dead in Boulder. And it just drives home like this never-ending nightmare, the inescapable reality of evil in this world. There is no one more realistic about that reality than Jesus. Jesus knows and he wants us to know that to walk out your front door is to put your soul at hazard. Because not only is there evil out there in this world, uh, evil is like a riptide that could suck us in at any moment and make us a part of it. Jesus is saying that there is, uh, that true spirituality always takes that reality into account. He's saying that there is no prayer life, there is no connection with God that isn't constantly aware of that reality and constantly praying about that reality. But here's the really amazing thing about this. Jesus is saying, I want you to be aware of this reality, but you do not have to be trapped by that reality. Jesus is saying there's help, there's rescue. In fact, the word deliver in this prayer literally means 
rescue. Jesus is showing us how to walk through the minefield of evil and not just survive, but thrive. How? Well, Jesus shows us three things uh, this morning in this last line of the Lord's Prayer. He shows us the reality of evil. He shows us the furnace of temptation. And lastly, the rescue of the Father. He shows us the reality of evil, the furnace of temptation, and the rescue of the Father. So first, Jesus shows us the reality of evil. Uh, Different Bibles will translate this last verse in different ways. So for instance, some Bibles translate it like this. It'll say, deliver us from evil. But other translations, including the one we read this morning, say, deliver us from the evil one. So the question is, is Jesus talking more about evil in general, or is he talking more about the devil, whom he calls the evil one? Scholars are divided on this, but here's the interesting thing. Pretty much all of them say, whichever option you pick, Jesus probably wants us to keep both of these things in view. In other words, there is real supernatural evil out there in the world, but there's also real human evil in here inside of our hearts. And and unless we keep all of that in view, we're going to have a really difficult time really understanding our biggest problems in this world. Now, that's really challenging for us in our culture and for a couple of reasons. First, the idea that there's a real devil sounds primitive and superstitious to us, especially in our scientific age. So many people, it's it's very easy to think, look, ancient people, they didn't know about things like germs or mental disease or mental illness or things like that. They just blamed everything on the devil. But if you look at the Bible, you see that's just not true. And one of the easiest ways to see that is look at what people said about Jesus. Some people said he's demon-possessed, but other people said, no, he's out of his mind. He's crazy. They knew the difference between those two things. Friends, here's the point. Uh, The Bible has a far more nuanced and multifaceted view of evil than we do. It says there's real supernatural evil out there in the world. Now, at one level, um, our culture has no problem naming evil, right? We look at things like racism, white supremacy, mass shootings, death camps, famines, the modern slave trade, the modern sex trade, and a whole host of other social ills, we have no problem saying that's evil. But have you ever thought about why is it that after countless centuries of civilization and countless human attempts to solve these problems, they never seem to get any better? In fact, a lot of times it feels like they're getting worse. Why is that? If you're exploring faith, if you're open to spiritual, supernatural reality, then Jesus is inviting you to consider the possibility that in addition to the evil systems of our world, that there are also very real supernatural forces of evil. In other words, demons that infiltrate, inhabit, and animate the systems of our world. That there is real evil out there. But secondly, we struggle when Jesus says that there is real evil in here. Um, especially in our culture, because remember, you know, we can look at the world and we could say, okay, evil systems, no problem. But evil people, well, maybe a handful, um, the monsters, the sociopaths, the psychopaths. We think evil people, that's um, the serial killers, the mass shooters, and the pedophiles, but not us. 
But Jesus is challenging us uh, not just to have a deeper understanding of the world, but to have a deeper understanding of our own hearts. You know, there's a place just a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says this. He says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? Notice Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts. It's just like this little offhand statement he makes. Jesus just assumes that we're evil. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he can't mean that we're all serial killers. So either we have to rethink what we mean by evil or else we have to get rid of this foolish notion that we have that Jesus is a great moral teacher. Because if Jesus is a great moral teacher, then this is part of his moral teaching. He assumes that we're all evil. And again, we struggle with that. And one of the main reasons is because in our culture, we have a narrative that goes like this. The narrative says human beings are inherently good. We were born innocent. But then we were traumatized by society. We were traumatized and wounded by unjust social systems, by externally imposed identities and roles, and by repressive social taboos. And the solution, according to this narrative, is that we have to get back in touch with our inner child, to get back in touch with our true, authentic selves. Now, not only is that the basic plot line of pretty much every animated movie for the last 30 years, it also just feels really intuitive to us. Like any rational, enlightened person, you just know this, duh. But the reality, historically, is that that narrative is the result of philosophers from about 250 years ago and their impact in our society. So one of the main guys is a fellow named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. There he is. Uh, You may never have heard of Rousseau, but he could have written the script for all of those animated movies. The reason that narrative feels so intuitive to us is because of the impact of philosophers and poets like Rousseau and many others and their impact in Western society over the last couple of hundred years. Now, what makes this especially complicated for us is the reality that you have been hurt. You have been sinned against by other people, by the systems of this world, and the Bible is fully aware of that reality. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, in the Garden of Eden, before the first human beings ever sinned, what happened to them? They were sinned against by the devil. Friends, you have been hurt. Living in this world, you have taken wounds. Jesus knows that. He knows your hurts. He knows your burdens. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. You have been hurt. Jesus knows that you've been hurt in this world, and he knows that you are not responsible for the evil that has been done for you, and he wants you to know that too. But he also wants you to know that you are responsible for the evil ways that that you and me have responded to the evil that's been done to us. Because do you ever feel trapped by patterns of living, thinking, and speaking that not only hurt yourself, they hurt others? Do you ever experience guilt over things that you've said and done? Of course we do. Modern psychology would say it's just a neurosis. It's just a pathology. Jesus is saying, no, it's deeper than that. Not only is there real evil out there in the world, there is real evil in here, inside our hearts. Jesus is saying you need 
to reckon with that. And that leads to our next point. How does that happen? How do we reckon with that? Jesus has shown us the reality of evil, but secondly, he shows us the furnace of temptation. Because if we go back to our verse, Jesus says that we should pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now that word temptation is another word that is kind of tricky to translate, and that's because there's a pretty wide spectrum of meaning in this word. On one end of the spectrum, this word can mean temptation, specifically temptation to sin. It's like a trap. When I was living in New York City, I remember when I first moved there, I was walking through Washington Square Park down in the West Village one day, and there were people there in the park who would call out to you. They, they would call out to me, hey, chief, what you looking for? They wanted to lure me into a drug deal or a sexual encounter or whatever it might be. It was a trap. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, this word can also mean a test and particularly a strenuous test, like a trial. You know, tests reveal whatever goes into them. So if you study really hard, if you're prepared, the test will reveal that. But if you don't study, if you're not prepared, the test will reveal that as well. Tests reveal whatever goes into them. It's like a furnace heated to an incredibly high temperature. What happens if you put something in a furnace? Well, it depends on what you put into the furnace. If you put hay or stubble into a furnace, uh, it'll get devoured. It'll just burn up like that. But if you put gold or silver into a furnace, it gets purified. The the heat actually, it means that the the gold is going to be even more glorious, more beautiful, more pure than it was when it went in. A furnace reveals the true nature of whatever you put into it. Now, here's the thing. Uh, There are many places in the Bible, including Jesus, that explicitly say God does not test people. God does not trap people. God is not standing on the street corners of your life calling out to you, hey there, what you looking for? That means that Jesus is not teaching us to pray, God, please don't tempt me. Please don't trap me. God doesn't do that. So what does Jesus mean in this prayer? Well, maybe one of the simplest ways to paraphrase it would be like this. Jesus is teaching us to pray, God, Father, please don't let my tests turn into traps. Please don't let the furnace devour me. Please let it bring me out more beautiful. Let it bring me out like gold. That's how Jesus is teaching us to pray here. Now, let me try to make this as practical as I possibly can for us. This means a couple of things for us. First, this means that we should expect tests in life. It means that we should expect to be tested by evil and suffering in life. This world is a fallen world. This, th- there's evil out there in this world. We should never be surprised um, when evil and suffering come into our life. So for instance, there's a place in 1 Peter 4 where the apostle Peter was writing to the early church and he says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That word test is the same word that Jesus uses when he says that we should pray not to to fall into temptation. And Peter connects that test to a fiery trial. He says it's like a furnace. He's saying that we should never be surprised. Christians are not naive or surprised by the presence of evil in this world. Expect tests. But secondly, this means that, that the real prayer is not so much to escape evil and suffering, but that we would overcome evil in our own lives. 
And listen, let me be very clear about something. That does not mean that we should never pray to be delivered from evil out there in the world. In other words, we should pray that people, our friends, our loved ones, our neighbors, our coworkers, the, the people in our communities, in our lives, and in our world, we should pray that people would not be shot dead in the street. We should pray that, but the primary prayer, the even more urgent prayer than that, is not that God would take us out of evil and suffering, but that he would use the suffering as a furnace to take the evil out of us. In other words, when I was walking through that Washington Square Park, the prayer is not, God, please don't ever let there be anybody out there to call out to me, hey, what you looking for? No. The prayer is, Father, please don't let this test turn into a trap. Please help me to walk through this furnace with courage and resilience and integrity. Please let it turn me into something more beautiful. Do you see this? The prayer is not so much that God would take us out of evil and suffering, but that God would use the suffering as a furnace to take the evil out of us. And here's why this is so important. I read a story about a man who was in prison for life. One night he was driving on a dark road and he hit a little boy. Instinctively, he just stepped on the gas and sped away and the boy died. But tragically, they said later that if the boy had received medical attention, that it's very possible he could have lived. Instead, he died alone in the dark. The guy never turned himself in, but they ended up catching him and sending him to prison for life. Later, he was giving an interview with a reporter, and he said this. He said, you know, when I was a young boy, my father had a pocket watch that he kept wrapped up in a handkerchief Um, in his top drawer. And one day I, I got out the pocket watch and I was playing with it when I dropped it and it broke. I just wrapped the watch back in the handkerchief and put it back in the top drawer. I never said a word. Later, when my father found it, he called together my siblings and myself and he said, I want to know who did this. I never said a word. And from that day on, I learned whenever I face a test, whenever the heat is on, whenever I come into a trial, just to keep my mouth shut. I never learned to face the tests. And because I failed all of those little tests, years later, when the big test came, I fell. It's a horrifying story, but it's a perfect example of exactly what Jesus is teaching us here, that the prayer is not so much that God would take us out of evil and suffering, but that God would use the suffering as a furnace to take the evil out of us. Now, there's one more thing we need in order to do this, and it's the most important thing of all. Jesus has shown us the reality of evil. Secondly, we've just seen the furnace of temptation. But lastly, Jesus shows us the rescue of the Father. Remember we said at the beginning that the very first word in the Lord's Prayer is Father. And because we've been going through this prayer line by line, week by week for the past several weeks, it's easy for us to forget that. But we need to remember that because every single request in this prayer is conditioned by the reality of God as Father. Now, here's why this is so important. We were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. Traditional religion says that if you live a good life, if you're a good person, then God will reward you with a good life. You know, secularism has its own version of that narrative. It says, look, who's to say if there's a God? So your ultimate happiness, your ultimate meaning, your ultimate fulfillment in life, it all depends on you. You have to work really hard. 
Both religion and secularism have this narrative that says, if you're a good person, God will give you a good life. If you work really hard, you should expect to have a good life. If that's your view of life, God, and reality, then when suffering comes to you, when you go into the furnace, what's gonna come out of you? Well, one response will be to blame yourself. You'll say, I must have done something wrong. God is punishing me. Another response is to blame God. (laughs) You might say, well, I did everything right. God is failing me. But another response might be to blame the world, to say, look, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. Life in this world will always let you down. Who's to say if there even is a God? You go into the furnace, and what comes out? If if you go into the furnace as a religious person, if you go in as a secular person, what comes out is anger, guilt, bitterness, resentment, self-defeat, self-pity, despair. Why is that? Because if you go in as a religious person or if you go into the furnace as a secular person, then the evil is going to shape the way that you look at God so that when you go into the furnace, instead of burning the evil away, it's gonna burn you away. But if you learn to go into the furnace as a child of the Father, that completely changes the way you look at evil and suffering. Because remember, the first word of the prayer is Father. That means that if the more you learn to see God as Father, that changes the way you look at the world, the way you look at your life, the way you look at everything that happens to you. I mean, here's what this means. It means that evil doesn't shape the way you look at the Father, The Father shapes the way you look at evil. So that the more you learn to see God as Father, that means that when you go into the furnace, instead of burning you away, it burns away the evil. So that when the suffering comes into your life, the suffering just makes you greater. It makes you more glorious, more beautiful. You come out like gold. How can that happen? Well, remember we were just talking about Peter a little bit. Peter said to the church, don't be surprised by the fiery trial that comes upon you to test you. Now, when Peter wrote that, you gotta understand, Peter was writing as someone who had a lot of experience with this. Peter went into a lot of furnaces in his life, but Peter didn't always come out gold. For instance, on the night that Jesus was arrested, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was in agony, and he said, Peter, would you stay here and pray with me? And Peter fell asleep three times He failed the test. And Jesus said, Peter, pray that you don't fall into temptation. He took the words of the Lord's prayer and he said, Peter, pray like this. Pray that your tests don't turn into traps. But then again, a little later that night, after Jesus had been arrested, Peter followed him to the high priest's house. And three times people asked Peter, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And three times Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. He failed the test again. Friends, Peter knew what it's like to go into the furnace and be devoured. So I think it's indubitable that when Peter's writing this letter, all these decades later, after all this time to think about it and experience it, you know, Peter's writing now as somebody who's learned what it means to, he's learned his lesson. Because at this point in his life, all these years later, Peter's someone who's constantly persecuted, constantly being attacked. In fact, Peter died by being crucified upside down. Peter learned how to go into the furnace as a child of the Father. 
so that Peter was no longer defined by the evil things that had been done to him. The, the evil was not shaping the way Peter looked at the Father. But even more amazing than that, Peter wasn't defined by the evil things that he had done. I mean, do you know why we have all these stories about Peter's failures in the Bible? It's because Peter himself told everyone. Can you imagine what it would be like to live like that? I mean, talk about an authentic life. You're not defined by the evil that's been done to you. You're not defined by society. You're not defined by the evil things that you have done. Instead, you're defined by what Jesus has done for you. That's the gospel. And, and I think it's very likely that um, when Peter was writing this letter, when he talks about the fiery trial, when he talks about the furnace, I think it's very possible that Peter had in mind the biblical story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were three Jewish men who went into a furnace. The first furnace was they were carried away into captivity in Babylon. They were taken prisoner. And then when they were there, the king, his name was Nebuchadnezzar, he commanded them to worship him, but they wouldn't do it. And, and Nebuchadnezzar was so furious, he said, if you don't worship me, I'm gonna throw you into this fiery furnace that he had constructed. But they wouldn't do it. They said, our God is able to deliver us. Our God is able to rescue us. But if not, we will still not worship you. And Nebuchadnezzar was so furious, he threw them into the fiery furnace. The furnace was so hot that it consumed, it devoured the soldiers that threw them in. But when Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace, not only did he see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not devoured by the furnace, he saw another person in the furnace walking with him in the midst of the furnace, and it says that it was one like a son of God. The reason that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to survive the furnace and not be devoured was because they had a son of God walking with them in the midst of the furnace. Friends, Jesus Christ is the true son of the Father, the true son of God who went into the ultimate fiery furnace. Jesus faced the ultimate test, the ultimate suffering. He faced the ultimate evil, but instead of being devoured by evil, Jesus defeated evil by entering right into the heart of the evil for you and for me. So that when you go into your own little furnaces, you can know that you have the Son of God walking with you in the midst of your furnace. He's someone who's able to deliver you, to rescue you. He can bring you out like gold. So the more you see Jesus going into the ultimate furnace on the cross, the more you know that Jesus is with you in the furnaces of your life, the more that transforms you so that you're no longer defined by the evil that's been done to you. You're no longer defined by the evil that you have done. You're defined by what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Friends, that this means that you do not look at the Father through the evil. The evil doesn't shape the way you look at the Father. The Father shapes the way you look at the evil so that you can learn more and more to pray, not that God would take you out of evil and suffering, but that God would use the suffering as a furnace to take the evil out of you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a God who doesn't leave us alone in the furnaces in the evil and the suffering of this life. And we thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus to go into the ultimate furnace on the cross 
so that we would always have the Son of God, the Savior of the world, walking with us in the furnaces of life, walking with us in the midst of the furnace. Lord, we pray this morning that you would teach us, help us more and more, that you would, yes, Lord, deliver us from evil, keep us free from, from evil in this world. But Lord, tests are gonna come, and we know that, that you have taught us that. And so we pray even more that you would not let um, the evil and the suffering and the furnace devour us or burn us away, but that through these evil, through this suffering and through the furnace, Lord, that the, the evil would be burned away out of us, that we might honor you and glorify you and serve you more and more in this world. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.